0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Canon Stephen Gauthier and is part two of our fully sacramental series. You know, Barbara and I, if you don't know this, have three children, and so we're no strangers to the experience or concept that there are expenses involved with having a baby. So you take the uh, everything from the prenatal visits to the doctor to getting all the baby stuff and, like, these, these, these car seats now, I think they're designed by NASA engineers or something to qualify. And, you know, all the stuff with the baby bag in the nursery, you know the, the drill. And on top of it all off, you have the cost of the actual delivery at the hospital. Well, unless you're the Crowls, who've given a whole new meaning to delivery van. Okay, <laughs> but in any event, so when you, when, you, when you finish all of this, you know, it's true. So you have the baby, bring the baby home, but Let me tell you, that's not the end of the story. You know, at a minimum, this kid's going to eat the next 18 years in your house. And so in a way, our spiritual lives are like this. It certainly doesn't end, you know, we we're, we're reborn once in our baptism. But that's not the end of the story. We have to be nourished for the rest of our lives. You know, the life we receive, our natural life that we receive in birth has to be nourished. We have to eat and continue to stay alive. We're given birth in baptism. The question is, how is that life, how is that divinely sustained? And that's the story of Eucharist. Now, the Bible compares our situation. It says the Bible tells us the way to understand the Eucharist is to think it's parallel to the situation that we had with Israel during the Exodus. Let me read you a line from 1 Corinthians. Paul says, speaking of the Israelites during the Exodus, he says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. So here's the parallel of these drawing. Remember when they were in Egypt, they were slaves basically under the death of slavery. And they're liberated, they cross the Red Sea. And he compares it like a baptism. They cross the Red Sea, and when they're on the other side, they're free. Remember the next morning, what happens is the bodies actually wash up on the shore. And the reason it's not just a grisly detail is you might logically think, well, gee, If they simply cross to the Red Sea, well, sure, there's going to be a delay, but there are boats, people walk around. They would just have a head start. How do we know this is once and for all, forever? It had to be that the Egyptians were gone, they were dead. And so that's why they emphasize after this, not only is Israel on the other side, but they will never, it's definitive, it's once and for all, it's over. As far as the slavery is concerned, they've gone from death to life, but that's not the end of the story. What was God's promise? He promised them the land, right? The land of Israel. He promised the land, promised to Abraham. But they weren't in the land. The Red Sea and the Holy Land, there's a space in between. They were going to have to cross. And that space was a desert. And what's the challenge of a desert? We say, all of us have to eat and drink every day. How do you do that in a desert? This is, you know, you're not going... You might have been saved, but you're going to die. Remember the Israelites said, have you just bring up, brought us out into the desert to die? Weren't there graves enough in Egypt? Look at the pyramids. Okay, weren't there graves enough? It was meant to be funny, the line, by the way, in the Exodus. There, aren't there graves enough in Egypt? It was actually meant to be humorous in, in the Bible. Okay so, the, okay, so basically what happens is what God has to do is he's miraculously gives them sustenance. He gives them manna, bread from heaven, from the sky. Heaven in the sky, same word. Bread from heaven. And he gives them that, remember the rock that comes water, gushes out in a desert from this rock. He miraculously feeds them and gives them water every day. And Paul's saying that's what happens. The baptism, we bring new life. But our promise is that we will be with the Lord, seeing him to face to face in our resurrection. body. That's our promised land. We're not there. So how do we survive between our baptism, you know, our birth, and the fullness of that promise when God brings us home to that land with him, seeing him face to face? That's the story of Eucharist. Eucharist is that, that food for the journey, which is our title basically for the, for the sermon. Now, let me just get something straight here. There are three different good terms that people use to describe this. They're all biblical. They're all good terms. Paul in chapter eleven of, of First Corinthians he describes what we do at the table as the Lord's supper. But basically, he's saying when the Christians at Corinth gather together, he describes it as the Lord's supper. Later, earlier on in an earlier chapter, when he describes what actually happens when we eat the bread, he says it's a. He uses the Greek word koinonia, which is it's a communion in the body, or more modern translations say participation. But the word, it's a participation in the actual body of Jesus. It's a participation. He uses that word to describe it. So that's why we sometimes call it communion, holy communion or Eucharist, or rather, holy communion or a Lord's Supper. The third is Eucharist. Where does that come from? Well, Remember, it always, in the three Gospels that give us the institution of the Lord's Supper, it always says the Lord Jesus took bread, he gives thanks, he gave thanks. Well, in Greek, that's Eucharistic, to give thanks. So early Christian fathers love that term because Eucharist could describe what we actually do. We come to God and thank Him, the Eucharistic prayer, the, the prayer of thanksgiving to God. And that's not the end of it. In Greek and Latin, you can do something neat. You can turn it into a noun, so you could take something called Eucharistia. It means the things for which you've given thanks. You can make a noun out of it. So the word Eucharist could mean not just what we do, but the product of that, what results. So that's why the church fathers loved to call it simply Eucharist, because it meant both. It meant, you know, both what we do and in what comes of what we do. So, I mean, those are all good biblical terms. So we can talk about about Holy Communion, Lord's Supper, Eucharist. Now, what we're going to ask, let's ask ourselves uh, three questions today. First, I'll talk about the table. You know, what does God bring to the table? Why do you think about what does God bring to the table? I mean, how does God actually nourish us? It's nice that He nourishes. How? What does He actually doing? What does God bring to the table? Now, normally that's where we stop, but we also bring something to the table. Paul tells us there's something we bring to the table, something we do every time we give thanks, do Eucharist. What exactly is that? What do we bring to the table? And the last question would be, Paul talks about discerning the bodies, the things, how do we, remember, I love in the story we had today in Luke's gospel, they recognized him, right? They recognized him. He'd been with them, but then they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. Some people weren't recognizing Jesus, in that they weren't, quote, discerning the body. Are we doing something that's stopping us from meeting Jesus in the Eucharist? What can we do to make sure we meet Jesus in the Eucharist? Okay, those are our three questions. What does God bring? What do we bring? And uh, how do we make sure we're discerning, we're meeting Jesus there? Okay, our three questions. And this, of course, is the second sermon. We're having five series this year on our diocesan vision. One was free to sacrifice. You know, we talked about that, you know, we're sort of liberated from that we can actually give of ourselves. That's a blessing we can give. The second thing, we talk fully scriptural, the we're just founded on the Word of God, the Bible. Fully sacramental, which is this series. This is the second in that series. Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, af- after that, uh, f- full of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as we approach Pentecost. And finally, fourth, we're all about the salvation of others. We call them the five S's. Now, in this series, we started last week with fully sacramental, talking about the church. Why? Because what do you need for a birth? You need a mother and Mother Church is the one who gives us birth in baptism. She's the one who feeds us like our mother feeds us in Eucharist. So we started with the church. Today we're going to talk about the Eucharist, and then next week we'll talk about uh, about baptism, and finally we'll talk about confirmation. On the Sunday we have our youth confirmations. And also, again, remember, sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible reality. We explained that last week. You know, the wind is very real, even though we can't see it, but we can see a flag in the wind, right? We, that shows us it's there. A sacrament means we're seeing something saying God's at work. The really important thing, you can't see it, but God's doing something. That's what a sacrament is. And we're saying That's what we're talking about, the sacrament of the Eucharist, one of the two gospel sacraments, baptism and Eucharist. Okay, what does God bring to the table? I'd like you to look in your bulletin on the sermon page. I actually have, the, have it printed out for you there. The second of the two quotes, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, here's one of the things we might miss is, you know, sometimes words change, meaning, for example, I love this, the word hope. The word hope in the Bible doesn't mean at all what it means in modern English. I think I understand that. The word in English, hope implies doubt, right? I hope he's coming means he's probably not, good chance he's not. Hope in the Bible actually means confident assurance. So it's not at all what it sounds like in modern English. Well, when we talk about the word remembrance, if you look at the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, it's actually a very, we think of remembrance as uh, sort of reminiscing or something coming back to mind you'd forgotten about. Now, there's an expression we see a lot in the Bible. It says like this. It says, God remembered Noah. God remembered Abraham. God remembered Rachel. Now, folks, God doesn't forget anything. It's not like he's going to say, what am I forgetting? Michael, Gabriel, what am I forgetting? It doesn't work like that. God doesn't forget things. So what does it mean when it's always used the word God remembered? It means he brings present reality and past promise into the same place. It's not rep- represent, it's represent. He actually makes the past present. So remembrance is a very powerful word. Do this in remembrance of me is saying we're going to make this. It's not a, uh, you know, a, a simple memory of the Last Supper. It's actually not the Last Supper. That was the First Supper. It's basically a perpetual summer that, supper that keeps on for all time. Remember, look at what Paul says again in 1 Corinthians. He says... For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a supper that never ends. We actually have a witness to that in the scriptures. Uh, one of the things that we see is, remember the feeding of the 5,000? That's meant to be an image of Eucharist. How do we know that? It's very obvious. Because they, they use the same four words to describe what Jesus does at the feeding of the 5,000 that they use to describe what he does when he, when he set, establishes the Lord's Supper. He takes the bread, right? He gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it to them. These exact same verbs. So what does it tell us with the feeding of the 5,000 about it? It's when I was a kid, I would wonder, gee, I wonder what that would have looked like to see that happening. Well, actually, if you look carefully at the, at the accounts that are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're very careful to say that Jesus gave the bread to his apostles, and the apostles gave it to the people. So he's talking about it. it's not just them, you know, it's something after them. And what happens when they're finished? they are, are baskets of leftovers. It doesn't end there. Nothing. It keeps going. So, again, the idea with remembrance is it allows us. We don't have to say, gee, I wish I had been back there. Why couldn't I have the experience that we do? You know, God crosses time and space and brings us to that place. It's like the Jews love to say, every Jew was at Sinai. This is not something that your father's had. You can talk about every Jew is at Sinai. Here, very really, all of us you know, are brought in. And also, if you look at the first quote we have there, Paul describes then, he says, what does it mean for remembrance? He says, we're, we participate in things here and now. Look at that first quote. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or a communion, the word coined in Greek, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, isn't it a participation? That means something going on right now, a participation in the body of Christ. Okay. Now, this is really shocking for a special reason. Let me read some words of Jesus here. When Jesus talks about the bread of life passage, it's right after, what a surprise, the feeding of the 5,000 in John's gospel. And Jesus says, he says, "'Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life.'" Now, what was really shocking, you'd say, well, gee, talking about eating someone, is shocking. But what shocks a Jew, was the second part, drinking blood. Because even with animals, a Jew never drinks blood. Because the commandment in the Torah says, it says the life is in the blood, and that belongs to God alone. Never, ever, you know, the actual commandment we have, only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. So the whole point—that's why, if kosher—that's what kosher butchers do. They make sure that all the blood. That's one of the biggest things about kosher butchery is to make sure there's no blood left in the meat, because blood is a symbol, is life, and life belongs to God. So Jesus is actually saying, "I want you to share in my life, my blood. Drink my blood. I want you to share, participate in my life. And since Jesus is God, that's eternal life. You know, to share in His life." That's why one of the great church fathers, Ignatius of Antioch, called it the, the medicine of immortality. We actually participate in that life now in, in Eucharist. Okay, that's what God brings to the table. You know, he, he crosses time and space and puts us participation, you participation know, in the very life of Jesus. But what do we bring to the table? And what it says, specifically in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, until he comes. He says, every time we are proclaiming the Lord's death. And that's done two ways that theologians tell us. is we proclaim to the world every time we gather around the table. We're saying, we're making a statement to the world. and We're also making a statement to the Father. So first of all, what are we proclaiming to the world? Let me tell you a story I love. It's a story beloved of any school child in the British Empire or Commonwealth knows this story. It's uh, one of the great moments of parliamentary history. It occurred on September 2nd. 1939. And remember, in the 1930s, Hitler was beginning, the horrible things would lead to the Second World War. he had already swallowed up Austria, he had swallowed up Czechoslovakia, and now he was making territorial demands on Poland. And the Poles came to the British and said, will you support us? We're willing to stand up, but we need support. We can't do it alone. Will you stand? And they gave an unconditional guarantee. They gave England's word that if you're attacked, we will stand up, an unconditional guarantee. Well, sadly, at 5.30 a.m., on September 1st, in 1939, the Blitzkrieg began. I mean, a war like people had never seen war before. The Lightning War began in Poland. Thirty-six hours later, there was no doubt Parliament meets, and everyone thought it would be that horrific moment, like after Pearl Harbor, when President Roosevelt calls both chambers of Congress together to basically say, we have to declare war. We've been attacked. Everyone expected the empire to go to war. Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister, stood up and began to give a speech, and everyone was sort of an awesome moment. You understand that three-quarters of a million Brits were killed in the First World War. It's unbelievable. Three-quarters, 750,000 people died. You can't go to town in England that doesn't have a monument to the dead from the Great War. This was pretty horrific. We're looking at a second war. But England had given unconditional guarantees. So for ten minutes, Neville Chamberlain is talking, and something horrible starts to come through to people. He's not talking about war. It's ambivalence. Uh, he's not talking about any action. And Leo Avery, a backbencher, can't believe this isn't the British way. Are we talking about actually cutting and running, leaving people who relied on us alone against the Germans? Is this serious? We're not going to declare what We promised. So when he sits down, the tradition in Parliament is the, the opposition rises, and you begin by saying, speaking for the opposition. So as, the, as, the, uh, uh, as Abmore rose to sp- speaking for the opposition, a cry came from Leo, in the, in Leo Avery in the back benches saying, when he said, speak for the opposition, he goes, who speaks for England? Everyone knows that. Like, who speaks for England? This is not the British way. We can't do this. <laughs> and the next day, happily, Britain did declare war, kept its treaty obligations, and went to war. And so why do I have this story about you know the idea of who speaks for England in a sense? This is what when we talk about proclaiming to the world at Eucharist. Remember Peter when uh, in the night Jesus was betrayed. Weren't you with him? The woman comes to him. You know, one of the words. Weren't you with him? I don't know the man. Again, you'll later on. Weren't you with him? No, I've never met him. And so basically, what we're saying: the world is, you know, the world is hostile to the faith. And so the real question: when we're called on, what are we saying every time at Eucharist? We're saying, "I'm with him." who speaks for Jesus? I do. That's our proclamation. We gather Every week we gather, we're saying, yeah, we're not casual bystanders, we're with Him. We didn't just happen to be there when Jesus was around, we're with Him. Now, I lived in the South for 10 years, and there are people who are less familiar with the Anglican tradition, and sometimes in being liturgical, they would say, do you, are you familiar with what an altar call is? I said, of course, I love altar calls. That's why we as an Anglican, we have one every week. We call it communion. And I mean it's a real altar call, because what is an altar call? We come forth and we recommit our lives personally and individually to Jesus. That's what every one of us does when we come to communion. We personally and publicly recommit our lives to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We have an altar call every week. I'm all for it. Okay. Now, um, what about proclaiming Christ's death to the Father? You know, Billy Graham, when we lost him last week, well, he's with God, what better place to be? But I loved it in his crusades. He'd always had this song when he'd have his altar call. And it was just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. You know, we come to God and say, here's my claim. Well, I'm confident is what Jesus did. That's what we do when we proclaim to the Father. We're saying, this is our claim. You know, that's, remember, that. that's why the dramatic moment in the Eucharist is actually the great amen, where we hold up and say, by him and with him and him, to you, almighty Father, be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. We're saying, yes, this is my claim, the blood of Jesus. That's what we do every year. That's how we proclaim. So we proclaim to the world, yes, I'm with Him. I'm one of His. I'm a disciple, not a casual passerby. And also we're saying, uh, you know, at the same time proclaim to you, my whole hope is in the blood of Jesus. I'm joining myself to His sacrifice. Now what could be hindering us from discerning the body? You know, why don't we… remember they recognized Him in the breaking of the bread. What could be stopping us from recognizing Him? Well, Paul is a wonder story in, in, the, in 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks these passages on the Eucharist came from, is there were people there who had exactly that problem. They weren't recognizing the body. And here's what actually was going on. Because, you know, he, rec- he say, well, I could believe that. But what you're, what's harder, what shocks people, is the reason he gives. Everyone yeah, I can understand people not discerning the body, but when you find out the reason, he says, it's sort of surprising. Here's what was going on. In the early church... The Eucharist was actually part of a bigger meal very often, the very earliest church. They had something called like an agape meal. Agape is love in Greek, okay? Or they call it like we were about a love feast. Basically, they had, it, was a giant, it was a church potluck, almost literally. I mean, people brought food with them. They shared the food, then they had Eucharist. So it was a giant potluck. And here's what was happening at, at these Eucharists, Paul tells us. People who brought food would only share it with their friends. So they're saying, well, this is for us. You know, you, you find food somewhere else. So there are people who actually went hungry, and in the ancient world, hunger isn't like we think of hunger, you know, like, gee, I could go for a burger. Uh, Hunger was a very real thing, especially with very poor people, you know, people often didn't have enough to eat. So people actually feasted while some people actually went hungry in a very literal sense there. And Paul says, this is incredible. No, he said, I'm not going to commend you for this. Here's Paul's argument. He said, you can't claim you see Jesus here and not see Him there. That's not possible. Remember we said last week we talked about the church. The church is the body of Christ, right? He's the head, and we're the members of that body. And it's one body. You can't claim, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in communion with the head. I'm just not communion with anybody else. It has to be both. And there's a beautiful way to remember this. Look at the cross behind the altar. The cross has to, to have two, it has two axes, right? It has a vertical and a horizontal. The vertical is, you know, in Eucharist, we have communion with God, communion in Christ with God but we also horizontally we have communion with one another. Remember he says if you look in the quote in the bulletin he says, you know, because we eat the the one bread, we are one body. It makes us one. You can't have one without the other. You can't have a cross without vertical and horizontal. You can't have communion without both. Communion with Christ. It's not something we just do individually, me and Jesus. That's certainly true. It's we in Jesus too. It's always both me and we in Jesus. We can't just say I'll just take the me and Jesus part. You do what you want. The two always go together. And that's why, by the way, we take such pains that every Eucharist, you notice we always have a confession of sin? We sin against each other, not just by God, but against each other. We confess. That's why we confess it to each other. We've let everybody down in the body. And we also have a peace, right? We, have the, we offer each other the peace to show, to remind ourselves we're one body, and then we approach the table. That's why we do it that way. Now... To conclude here, the church has a wonderful comparison that I love. It really is a lot to me. The story of Elijah. Remember the, the prophet Elijah. His great moment, uh, one of his great moments was his victory over the prophets of Baal. Remember on Mount Carmel? If you don't know the story, is Israel, a lot of people are going after pagan gods Baal. And he finally, I love him. He's a very direct guy. Prophets tend to be pretty direct, accounting for their lack of popularity. And uh, he… <laughs> And he, uh, you know, he, he called on him as he saw him. And he said, look, you know, he said, stop hobbling, stop limping between two opinions. Either God is God or is he. Make a choice. And he says, let's have it out. So he has a contest. Remember, he sets up two altars. And God comes through for him beautifully. And God is vindicated. But the trouble is, his enemy was a woman named Jezebel who just would not say die. Well, actually, she did. Uh, she's saying, you're going to die, but you, know, you get the idea. She, the woman did not give up. Okay, and she said, look, I've had it because she was big on Baal worship. I'm going to get you. She said, you're going to be dead. So he has to flee into the desert, and he's really depressed. He's had this great mountaintop experience, and now he's really in the dumps. And he even says, I'd rather be dead. In, in poetic language, you say, I'd rather be g- gathered to my fathers is the nice way of saying buried, you know, dead and buried. And so what happens, he falls asleep, and he wakes up. And I want to read this passage, too. It's a short passage. It says, he lay down and slept under a broom. He's just, you know, the kind, of, just the kind of sleep you have when you're just bitterly disappointed, frightened, and giving up. He lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, and there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, I love this, he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. The reason I love that line, there's a communion rail in one of uh, of the churches of my childhood. And it has, I still remember my dad, a blessed memory, showing me it was in Latin and explaining, here's what it means. He said, "He, he ate and he drank and he walked in the strength of the food to the mountain of God. That's the story of Eucharist. As we're walking to our home with God, to the mountain of God, what's the, you know, the angel says, get up and eat. You need strength for the journey. So we look, and there, there is the, you know, the food and the drink that God has prepared to give us that strength. So as we go to communion, it's good to look up at that altar and remember that we're going to see that food and drink that God has prepared to sustain us on our journey. So let our prayer be that we too may eat and drink and walk in the strength of that food all the days of our life until we reach our heavenly goal, the mountain of God. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As a part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.